0: And I think what we what I've learned is a few things. First, it's that um, everyone is really clinging for a sense of connection and belonging and a need uh, to feel as if they are seen, included and have a space in a process by which they are her- heard. And, and we quickly learned as we've started to do restorative practices that our students are or get and develop a culture around restorative practices with our students that this is a, a whole organizational model. Uh, we've learned and I've learned that. Um, our staff are at their best uh, when they thrive, when they can thrive in a culture where they have a capacity and a willingness uh, of and a space to really engage in some meaningful relationship building so that when things get difficult, uh, we have a method and a build established sense of trust and care for one another that allows us to get through the difficult parts.
1: Hello, and welcome to Student Affairs Now. I'm your host, Keith Edwards. Today, we're talking about reimagining social justice from a proactive perspective. We have three scholars and leaders who are reimagining leadership for social justice in theory and practice. These folks are living this in their scholarship, work, and lives. We'll be exploring proactive approaches to creating communities that foster equity and justice. Guests will, describe, will discuss libertary approaches, restorative practices, healing justice, and strategies to integrate them into the residential experience. Student Affairs Now is the premier podcast and online learning community for thousands of us who work in, alongside, or adjacent to the field of higher education and student affairs. We release new episodes every week on Wednesdays. Find details about this episode or browse our archives at studentaffairsnow.com. Today's episode is sponsored by Simplicity, a true partner. Simplicity supports all aspects of student life and technology platforms that empower institutions to make data-driven decisions. This episode is also brought to you by Stylus. Visit styluspub.com and use their promo code Now for 30% off and free shipping. Today we're sharing the third of three conversations in a series I hosted for the University of Massachusetts Amherst Residential Life Team. The series focused on reimagining residents' life work, crisis response and on-call, and social justice. I invited some of the most innovative thinkers and practitioners I know to share their thoughts, ideas, and approaches to generate possibilities for us all to consider. Each conversation we share with you in this series was followed by a Q&A with the UMass Residential Life folks to discuss this in their particular context. Thanks to UMass Residential Life for making these conversations possible and for allowing us to share them more broadly with you here. As I mentioned, I'm your host, Keith Edwards. My pronouns are he, him, his. I'm a speaker, consultant, and coach. You can find out more about me at keithedwards.com and I'm broadcasting from Minneapolis, Minnesota at the intersections of the ancestral homelands of the Dakota and the Ojibwe peoples. Let's bring in our guest for this wonderful conversation.
2: Awesome, hello, Rachel Wagner, she, hers pronouns. Um, I live and work and pray and play on the traditional homelands of the Cherokee Nation, the Eastern Band of Cherokee. Um, And as an uninvited guest in Cherokee lands, one of my obligations is to understand the commitments that I need to um, uphold to Cherokee um, knowledge systems and understandings of relationality. So I invite you to think about your commitments on the lands that you're occupying. I, um, I'm a UMass grad. I did my doctorate in social justice ed there at UMass. And I also was in, um, residence life. I was an ARD in JA and an RD in Cashin um, prior to a couple more trips around the country before I landed at Clemson University, where I'm an associate professor of higher education and student affairs. Um, I fancy myself a social justice educator, and I love these conversations, and I particularly think that housing is ripe for opportunities to realize some of our emancipatory dreams. So I'm super excited to be here with you today.
1: Mm, wonderful. Thank you so much for that, Rachel. And uh, Raf, let's go ahead and hear from you and um, where you are and what you're doing.
0: Thanks, Keith. Hello, everyone. My name is Rafael Rodriguez. I use he, him pronouns. Uh, I am in New York right now, at New York University, and we are, of course, located uh, in the essential uh, homelands of the Lenape people, the unceded homeland and territory of the Lenape people. Uh, important. Thank you, Rachel, for starting us off and acknowledging um, where we're coming from in our history. It's important in, as we engage in these conversations to always keep in mind the ways in which we have a a lot of work to do and the ways in which we have to acknowledge our history in order to do better as we move forward. Uh, I am the Dean of Students, AVP and Dean of Students at New York University. Most of my time previous to this role was spent in uh, residential life and housing services. I was the executive director of housing uh, at UVM. Prior to that, I started at the University of Vermont as a residence director, uh, climbed up as an assistant director, took a pause from the residential education side, the on-call side and did uh, some time uh, working with our assessment team and our initiatives team and eventually um, became the executive director. And a lot of our work uh, really revolved around how do we engage uh, in the place that we were, the University of Vermont in the first and or second most wide state, depending on the year uh, with a very diverse um, residential ed- education team and residential life department focusing on how do we engage uh, in very difficult dialogue within the context that we're set up in. And, and it was uh, an extremely rewarding uh, A group of people that I got to work with and amount of work that I get to bring along with me in my NYU uh, journey.
1: Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Thank you. And Kayla, let's hear a little bit more about you.
3: Absolutely. Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Kaylee Marocca. Pronouns are she, her, hers. And I am coming to you today from Baltimore, Maryland on the ancestral lands of the Piscataway and Piscataway-Kanoi peoples. Um, I actually grew up in Massachusetts, um, so you all are um, sort of in in my homeland a little bit there, Um, but my background has really been in living learning programs and residence life, so residential education, curricular work, Um, but I've recently made a shift, so I now actually work for the International Institute for sort of practices, and I'm working with them to build a collaborative center for restorative practices in higher education, which is really exciting work um, and hopefully something that will continue to, to grow and we'll be able to dig into. But my, I think my connection to our conversation today is really, is really rooted in sort of uh, my not only my professional restorative practices work, but also my research. So uh, I have a lot of research interests around restorative justice and restorative practices and particularly um, the use of restorative as a strategy for relationality. Um, sometimes effectively, sometimes ineffectively as a way to resist, um, you know, our dominant cultural ethos and power structures in higher ed. Um, So I'm really interested in looking at, um, you know, restorative practices and white supremacy and neoliberalism and settler settler colonialism um, in higher education. So I'm excited to be here for the discussion and also excited to to learn from the other panelists.
1: Yeah, I'm so excited to have all three of you here individually. Uh, I know each of you and have really appreciated what you do and how you think about it. And uh, I'm so excited to be in this coll- kind of collective conversation. So um, I also know you have so much brilliance, so I'm going to try and wind you up and get you going. So uh, mm-hmm. Rachel, we have been co-conspiring for two decades now, and you're one of those people who uh, haunts me in the best of ways. As I go about my <laughs> life living things, I remember things that Rachel said in that one room <laughs> 15 years ago, and it still sticks with me. Yeah. Um, But as you mentioned, you're a UMass Res Life and social justice education alum. You bring both the criticality and the generativity to your social justice work. You and I have been in conversations and conference presentations around both the what and the how of social justice work. And I just wanna point you to how do we both and both the anti-oppression lens and analysis and the liberatory, as you said earlier, the emancipatory approach to social justice take it away.
2: One of my absolutely favorite topics. Um, So yeah, to start, of course, we have to have an analysis of oppression, a robust one, right? Um, And there are all kinds of tools that can help us with that. So I think about Patricia Hill Collins work and the matrix of domination that lets us recognize and anticipate you know different domains of power so whether that be structural or disciplinary which plays out i think a lot um in predominantly white institutions hegemonic and interpersonal um that is one framework that can sensitize us to the way that power is functioning and usually functioning asymmetrically right um intersectionality theory crenshaw's work really compels us to understand how power collides and intersects structurally, politically, and culturally. Um, I think that critical race theory, queer theory, um, a lot of the critical theories that we think about today in terms of like critical disability studies and critical trans politics, um, all sort of invite us to cast our attention to Who's at? Who's operating at the margins, right? Um, and who have purposefully been, um, placed there, right, or relocated or dispossessed to the margins, um, and, and then in the case of like those last couple of, um, critical theories around queer theory and, um, disability studies, um, really thinking about how they provoke us to, um not only interrogate the status quo, which I think all critical theory should help us do, but especially to interrogate the kinds of normativities and norms that um, circumscribe our lives and make some folks' lives seem impossible, right? Um, Make some ways of being and doing in the world um, invisible, and illegible, as you know, some scholars talk about, think about Z Nicolazzo's work. So um, yeah, we need that capacity to kind of root out what is going on and and to see, okay, where is business as usual leaving folks behind? Where does it reduce life chances? Um, how are how are some of these death dealing institutions devastating communities? Right. Um, and and to actively look for that because we have ample evidence that it's probably present, right? So that's incredibly important. And I don't dismiss that, but often I would contend in, um, in social justice circles and equity and inclusion circles, and certainly in student affairs, we stop at an analysis of oppression. And we don't really give a concomitant amount of attention to having a vision and an analysis of what we are working to bring about, right? Um, what we're, what kind of world we all deserve to live in. So I think about Leanne Simpson's work, who's an um, Anisha Nabeg, feminist um, who characterizes um, this idea of indigenous resurgence. Which is a set of generative and emergent practices that foster self determination, foster well being, foster community, foster independence, but does it in non hierarchical, non exploitive, um, non extractive, <laughs> um, non authoritarian ways and ways that really center relationships and center ethics and reciprocity and mutuality. Mm-hmm. Um, and if, if we don't know where we are going and we don't have some of these, um, uh, engaged and, um, collective processes to get us there, then we can critique, we can dismantle, we can interrupt, but, um, but have we just not built anything have we not created anything um have we decimated and destroyed and not engaged in the much i would say harder work um of creation and generation and um and you know i'll you know i'll just end with once you take up a liberatory mindset um once you're down that path, (laughs) that's when the real juicy questions surface, right? The ones that um, I like to muse with and experiment with, like, um, what will we need to know? What will we need to be able to do um, to build and flourish in an emancipatory world, right? What values have to be centered? What dispositions and skills must be cultivated? right, what environments support emancipatory space and what structures have to be implemented, right, to bring it about and and for this audience, I think about residential communities that are set up explicitly for mm-hmm. students to rehearse the kinds of dispositions and skills and ways of relating in the world that are desperately needed to enact liberatory place, mm-hmm. right? Um, I think that we all have a stake in that and and can work to bring it about. Mm-hmm. It's pretty exciting stuff.
1: Yeah, and in, I, I get so energized around the territory of liberation and emancipation and what's possible there and what would the benefits for everyone be, not just for those who are marginalized and oppressed. Um, and I think sometimes, I think the caution I would offer is, as you said, sometimes we forget if we don't also have that anti-oppression lens, you can do a lot of harm. That's where toxic positivity, let's just pretend things are great without really understanding the roots of it right there. So I love the both and that you're bringing here. We have to have both of those. Otherwise, it's it's empty emancipatory. Yeah. It's just perf- performative or recovering up surface the harms that being done.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Wonderful. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, well, that's a great setup for what both I hope uh, our other guests are going to sort of point us to. And Raf, you, you've led, as you said, at UVM, you were centering restorative practices, not just in restorative justice and when a harm has been done or after a conduct case. But like, how do we build the communities during the first weeks uh, in a restorative way so that they're robust and more equitable, proactively preventing some of this? Help us sort of understand what you learned through some of that work and how we can be proactive, not just in addressing harm after it's done, but creating more equitable communities, more liberatory spaces from the very beginning.
0: Yeah, I appreciate the question. And I think what we, what I've learned is a few things. First, it's that um, everyone is really clinging for a sense of connection and belonging and a need uh, to feel as if they are seen, included, and have a space and a process by which they heard, they're heard. And, and we quickly learned as we've started to do restorative practices through our students are, or, or get and develop a coach around restorative practices with our students that this is a, a whole organizational model. Uh, we've learned and I've learned that um, our staff are at their best uh, when they thrive, when they can thrive in a culture where they have a capacity and a willingness uh, of and a space to really engage in some meaningful relationship building so that when things get difficult, uh, we have a method and a build established sense of trust and care for one another that allows us to get through the difficult parts. Uh, we often talked about our work as one of building relationships Uh, We would send RAs out to build relationships and go build community and they'll say, how? And we say, yeah, build it, build it. (laughs) They will say, how? (laughs) And it's restorative practices is giving them a template by uh, and a set of expectation of, we're gonna uh, create a culture by which we center all voices. We eliminate the person or the hierarchy on top of the room, but really engage in honest and authentic ways to share who we are, what we bring, how might that be different? Uh, and leverage that early on when the stakes are not as high so that that sustains you through the difficult times that will inevitably come because we're people. If you have more than one person in the room, you're going to have disagreement. Sometimes with just one person in the room, you might have some disagreement. Uh, you may not be in in, in, um, in agreement with yourself. Yeah. But I've also learned that organizations and people and communities thrive when leaders are willing to role model the level of vulnerability of work and engagement uh, that we expect of students, that we expect to cultivate in our staff. And and without that piece, um, there's a missing missing chain in the whole process. That on top of the um, important work of keeping the lights on and making sure that the strategic plan is um, published by X date and executed by, year three, that is incredibly important for an organization to be on task. It is also critically important for an organization to understand how it does its work. Uh, And without really uh, assessing that or building a culture where everyone is in agreement and understanding of how that is done, it becomes difficult to have the difficult conversation uh, Rachel outlined, the real needed conversation. We also learned that establishing a proactive sense of how we come together, how we address and celebrate, but also how we have the full conversation, provided a base foundation for how we did our social justice and intercultural competence work. Mm. And a lot of folks understand that this is how we do this. We have spaces where we come together and we're going to share authentically, and we won't always agree. And sometimes it may be difficult to hear. Sometimes it may be challenging to do this work this is the platform and allowed folks to understand and know how we engaged, at least in our department. What we also learned was, not on the RP side, but how we engage. really complementing what Rachel shared, was the understanding of what we needed to do beyond analysis. Uh, that analysis of power is critical, uh, and we quickly learned that the skills of engaging were even much more critical. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a lot of my doctoral work, followed Catherine Sorrell's work and Amir Ahmed, really looking at intercultural uh, competence, or sorry, intercultural praxis, which is the blending of intercultural competence, which has some challenges, Mm -hmm. uh, and social justice, uh, moving beyond analysis and thinking about how do we blend both approaches? How do we do an analysis of skills or an understanding of skills that are needed to work across difference while not always looking at power as abstract, but as always multifaceted and present across all cultures. So, how do we bridge those two ways of engaging together, so that we're always doing a complex analysis of power? while developing skills to work across difference. Uh, and what was difficult was um, we often I using I statements uh, in doing that work found it difficult to get beyond my marginalized identities. And where I found the most traction was well, what if I focused on The skills I need to work across difference and a concrete analysis of power if I focus on my dominant identities. Mm -hmm. And that's the basis by which we engage. And we found that work to be transformational so that those circles were not just circles where people of color were inevitably sharing their trauma and their pain and hurt yet again. Mm -hmm. But instead, I had an opportunity and the responsibility to work around how my maleness and my privilege as uh, in my illness would come up and show up in those spaces and what I needed to do and how I engage and how I understood systems of oppression or just understood and engaged in everyday life to uh, have a different way of framing, of engaging, of thinking. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we found that to be transformational, difficult, hard, but ultimately so rewarding.
1: Mm-hmm. I'd love to hear about some of the practices or the skills that you're mentioning, um, I know we don't have a lot of time, but are there are some that just easily pop to your mind.
0: Uh, yes, the first one is trust. Trust is foundational, uh, and it's uh, it's it's it does nothing happens beyond trust. So if you think about folks in polarization, if you think about world today, mm-hmm. uh, a lot of our time in sessions, which will often um, it's also one of the earlier developmental processes of intercultural competence, it would often frustrate folks who are ready to like dig in. We often spend our first few weeks and our first few sessions. Uh, around departmental-wide diversity uh, series, building trust, um, because that's foundational. Another one is flexibility and thought, right? The the ability to not finish a story when we see a person. Mm. And that is a practice that is difficult to do, right? To see a student coming in, uh, to see a colleague coming in, uh, in, in, in presenting in any ways that they present and not trying to finish the script before we had the capacity opportunity to hear the stories, huge. And empathy as a later stage skill. We often think about empathy as something that we have right away. Empathy often gets conflated with guilt. Mm -hmm. uh empathy is a high order thinking which is i can see myself and my humanity in your humanity which is different than oh goodness i feel so bad about what this is happening that's guilt Mm -hmm. guilt does very little Mm -hmm. um empathy is transitional
1: Mm -hmm. i'm just hearing the um connection is coming through there right the the connection with trust the connection in you know i i'm assuming this about you. but I don't wanna make that assumption or I might be wrong. I think Jess Pettit talks about you know, our assumptions, making sure they're, they're human that we're gonna make those assumptions, but how do we keep that a good first draft and being really open to how might I be wrong and how might I be doing this? And then the empathy as a connection as well. Great. Um, well, take it from here, Kaylee, you have uh, worked with restorative practices and now are expanding that and higher ed and, and sort of leading this and offering so much. You mentioned your research, Uh, But I'm really interested because you've worked with two different institutions, two different curricular approaches, using restorative practice as both the what teaching about restorative practices, but also the how and how you're doing that. These folks are using a, a curricular approach as well. I'd love to hear, and, and I always find that folks who have done this at two different institutions have a different level of understanding. Uh, the multiple context really hones that in. Um, so so help us with uh, restorative practices uh, to build communities.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, I think it really, for me, has boiled down to the fact that oftentimes we hold on to the what we know, right? We We hold on to the what when we're building a curriculum or a process, and I think oftentimes we need to take a step back and and think a lot more sort of about the how and about about the background. I think, you know, there's so many ways I think we can talk about content and process and pedagogy, but um, from a really personal level, level, whenever I've leaned away from centering community and relationships and process in my work, I found that that's really where I get pulled away from being able to do the personal work around social justice and also sort of that larger systemic work around building just communities, right? So I think if we're trying to center social justice, if we're trying to center relationships in our curriculum work, um, this has to become a much more personal process, then we sometimes make the curricular work, right? And restorative practices has been really powerful for me because it's not just a way to transform communities and challenge power structures, like it is that, um, but it's also really been a way to transform myself and challenge my own way of thinking, come to terms with my own privileges, um, come to ways, terms with the ways that I uphold unjust systems sometimes in my work. Um, and so, I think that self-knowledge is really what's been foundational for me to even, you know, start to think about that pedagogy level. When you're thinking about relationships, you really have to to take the time to to sort of build that personal foundation. And I mean, when we're talking about content building, we're talking about curriculum, um, and we want to do that in a in a relational way, in a way that's in alignment with the the top of our conversation today and what Rachel and Raph have shared. I think it takes a lot of time for reflection. It takes a lot of time for focusing on relationships instead of tasks. I think it takes a lot of time for us to consider feelings and emotions and not just what we're thinking about. Um, you know, uh, Rachel mentioned reciprocity. That's a, a huge part of the process that we have to consider. It takes um, time to learn and think about the, the larger systems that we're working within. Um, and it takes time to focus on the process. And you'll hear me keep repeating the word time um, because I don't think there's anybody that's ever worked in residence life that doesn't know that time is the thing that it feels like we don't have enough of, right? We're extremely task-oriented. Um, folks are oftentimes managing multiple positions um, with vacancies and without vacancies um, in departments Um, and I think, you know, time is one resource that we don't always have, Um, but I think that's like a really important thing just to stop and and talk about, right, as you're building your curriculum, you're thinking about how you're spending your time when you're balancing priorities of managing students um, because that efficiency mindset or that sense of urgency mindset that we have in student affairs is really actively working against our ability to be relational, right? And, and that has to do with a lot of things, right? It's intentional. The systems that we work within, the institutions of higher ed that we work within, um, you know, the the norms and the ways we've been socialized into that work are so deeply rooted in these oppressive systems, right? And these neoliberal systems and these systems of white supremacy. Um, and sometimes we can't even our, see our, sort of see our way out of them. Mm-hmm. In some ways. Um, so when we're, you know, too busy to think critically about building relationality into our work, um, when we don't have time to think about how we're contributing to systems of injustice, we don't even, we can't even think about it because we're running from task to task. Um, we sort of turn into being these like little curricular Res life worker robots, right? Um, and um, you know, we implement the strategies to assess our learning outcomes, and we write the report. Um, and we're completely missing an opportunity, right, to connect and to learn. And to, and that's the the piece of this that really transforms our communities. Um, and so I just think one the biggest thing I've learned in doing curriculum work is that if we want to really be able to effectively focus on social justice work within curriculum and within processes, um, we have to we have to think about how we're managing our time in our position, um, how we're structuring time for folks that work in in the field, um, because you know, I, I think we're doing our students and we're doing ourselves a disservice when we let our interactions and our implementations be really just transactional mm-hmm. instead of relational. Um, and we can talk all we want about ways of knowing and epistemologies and social justice, but I think if we can't really hit that, hit that low-hanging fruit of like, how do we be more relational and more collective and start to to move back into the spaces that Rachel talked about, right, of, of reciprocity and relationality and mutuality. Um, you know, we're not really going to be able to move this work forward in a really effective way. Um, We can't write learning outcomes our way out of the problems that we have (laughs) in student affairs, right? That's not going to work. And so um, I think the biggest thing I've learned is you have to take a step back. You have to think about the how, you have to think about how we're using our time, um, how we're building and processing and focusing on um, relationships. Um, And I feel like that sounds like a really simple answer, but I think it's actually a lot harder than it sounds, um, That can be really transformative.
1: I mean, it's it's the middle of December. I think time is still, <laughs> making time doesn't seem so easy, right? But you're talking about um relationality being so central. and the key to that is time to do it, to reflect, to be together, being so important. And then you're outlining a lot of the obstacles, right? Efficiency, white supremacy culture, task oriented, transactional, all these things. What have you seen, maybe experienced yourself or seen in the teams that you've led? What is sort of the breakthrough moment where we sort of have this like, oh, now I see you get some of the rewards, some of the benefits, and it starts to self propel beyond that this is hard, this is not what we're doing. What, what have you seen as kind of the breakthrough there?
3: Yeah, I mean, I've also worked in organizations, especially like RAF, where um, you know, restorative practices, restorative justice was sort of used as a as a foundation for building community, both in residence halls and in, in the places that I've worked, um, like the offices and, and the teams. Um, and I think the transformative moment for me was actually um, when we stopped just training what people needed to do. So we stopped just teaching tools yeah. um, and learning outcomes and strategies. Um, And we started and actually sitting down and having a conversation about like how we were doing that and the principles behind the work that we were doing. Um, I remember uh, sitting with a group of students and um, being like, really, all you have to think in any situation is we want you to focus on the connection before you think about the content, right? Mm-hmm. You have a lesson plan um, and it's, you know, you want to get to those learning outcomes, but at the end of the, the day, that connection is always more important. And, you know, that's the piece of this that we really want to hold you accountable to. And there's just this moment of like, oh, like that's how I'm supposed to show up with my residents, um, which is so powerful. So again, I think it, it's sometimes just about shifting From a focus on the outcomes to a focus on the process Mm -hmm. um, and a a focus on the connection, um, which feels sometimes counterintuitive to the way we're, well, at least the way I was raised in the field.
1: Well, and I think we we oftentimes make that adversarial connection versus outcomes. When in reality, connections is the pathway to the outcomes, right? If you Mm -hmm. want to do that. And, you know, um, learning in community is adversarial processes doesn't make sense. The way you're going to learn the things we want you to learn is by being in an authentic community with all the joys and celebrate and struggle and conflict, that's gonna be the path to that. So I really appreciate bringing, uh, well, I've had an opportunity to ask each of you the question to sort of bring out the brilliance that I know about, let's put you in conversation. So what do the three of you see as the potential of liberation, of restorative justice, of healing justice, which we've been talking about, but not specifically transformative justice, and building communities of well being, belonging, and liberation. Uh, these folks at UMass are really focused on well being. They're also really focused on belonging, and UMass has a great history of social justice. Um, also, what are the risks or points of caution here? Um, I know you all want to get in. We're going to start with Raph. <laughs>
0: Thank you. Uh, I- I'm thinking about um, the rewards before I think about the risk. And Kaylee was mentioning. Uh, the moment, the aha moment, and and many times I've seen that the aha moment is knowing that you will be utilizing the time anyway. And what you're shifting is not dedicating more time, it's reshifting how you're spending your time. And it's much more productive and um thinking about well-being. It is so much well-rounded and holistic to come to a workplace where you're more focused on building versus responding. I mean, all of our work is responding to have a culture where we uh, at least balance uh, it a lot better, where we are focusing on uh, actively and proactively building uh, a sense of trust, a sense of connection and leveraging that when moments get difficult versus starting from, you know, um, zero deposits. That account gets overdrawn quickly when there is no trust, no sense of connection, no relationship. So you're spending so much time just responding and deescalating with very little success. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that is just, uh, I think, for me, a reward that I would uh, think outweighs many uh, of the of the risks. Uh, the risks it's it's, it's a, it can be fearful. It can be scary uh, to shift because the pressing structures of uh, organizations and white supremacy are often rooted in uh, in compliance and execution and production uh, and thinking and slowing down and shifting how one approaches how one engages shifting from a task and a services sort of checkbox approach to a more relational approach it takes time and energy uh, mentally uh, as we all can imagine but also organizationally and, and that's a risk. That's a risk that um staff and leaders have to be willing to take, yeah,
1: Go ahead, Kaylee.
3: yeah. Um. Thanks for that, Raf. I you know, I'm I'm sitting here thinking about uh, you know, Keith, you mentioned well-being being really important to folks at UMass. And um I feel like folks in the restorative practices world have been making the argument that um community well-being or social well-being needs to be more focused on. Um and I'm not sure that um that has ever become more clear than coming out of the COVID-19 pandemic, right? Um, the way that our social relationships and our networks really inform um, our experience of well-being, I think, um, you know, it's just really coming to the forefront of our experiences. Um, and I think it's just really important that we're we're taking the time to think about how how we're doing that well um, for our students and for ourselves. Um, you know, it's a, it's a tough time for people working in higher education too. People feel disconnected. Um, You know, they um, are struggling to figure out if they can see themselves in the field in uh, in the future. And I think that um, a lot of those things center around this same issue, right? How, how can we build communities as Raph is talking about where trust, where there's, you know, where there's trust, um, where there's community, where people, um, you know, feel connected to their work. Um, And so I think, I think the the connection is there. And I think it's really powerful um, and has a lot of potential. I I mean, I do also think, you know, um, you asked Keith about sort of the the risk points. Doing restorative work, um, I think you know, and Raf would probably agree with me on this, um, there are ways to do re- use restorative tools to create additional harm, mm. right? Um, and so I think um one point of caution to think about as we're as we're approaching this work um is that um it's possible, you know, for for good efforts within this work for ways to move social justice work forward um to continue to sort of perpetuate. The, the systems that already exist, right to be co-opted by those systems um, and continue to sort of be um, a space of, of harm. Um, and so uh, that causes us and calls us to really examine the work we're doing critically. Um, I think it calls us to um, as, as I talked about before, really take the time to do that um, and to make sure um, you know that we're that we're getting feedback um, that we're that we're involving people who are impacted by our decisions in the things that we're doing. Um, and and you know carefully moving forward in that way as well.
1: Mm-hmm. Rachel, I saw you taking notes over there. That always makes me
2: because <laughs> my brain is firing. These yeah. folks are fantastic. Um, so I have probably two levels of responses to this question. Um, one level is on the sort of thinkery um, contemplative side, which is my, I think my biggest caution is for us to not get stuck in the trap that liberatory and emancipatory microclimates don't already exist, mm-hmm. right? That we, um, that we really need to be humble about how we look to, um, folks who are leading the way um, in terms of engaging in community care and mutual aid, right? That that is a very, I think, illuminating um, uh, approach to liberation. Um, How is indigenous resurgence and land rematriation or black prophetic traditions and Afrofuturism or prison abolition movements Already doing the work of liberation and healing, right? And um I think about queer underworlding, right, refugee place making, these like really um, very not business as usual, very not um, uh, dominant forms of um resistance and world making and um being alongside one one another as we create the worlds that we deserve um that's already taking place and um can that compel us can that can those practices those examples those lived experiences that aren't necessarily under the auspice of you know I believe in social justice or I believe in healing, so um, I'm gonna practice indigenous resurgence. It's a way of living and being and doing. Um, that prison abolition or abolitionist politics is a way of orienting yourself to the world. And there are folks who are already modeling um, and and bring, manifesting that. And can I can I be compelled to entangle My own energies, and my resources, and the resources within the community that I'm working into that space, um, and and maybe extend place a little bit farther than the um, boundaries of my residential community, Mm -hmm. right? Um, So I think about that on one level, and then and then and sort of you know the concrete practical. I think about my own kind of everyday practices i um i had a colleague this year who is in another department but like you know there's like four indigenous faculty on campus and so he was a new um uh enrolled member of the Cherokee Nation who came to campus and like um of course i met him right like that's just that happens and um and he, he was like on a one year contract and Um, and he's, uh, in, was staying at an Airbnb and then like, um, and then that one was up. And so then he would have like two days in a hotel and then he would have to like, um, juggle another Airbnb long-term stay. And, um, this was going on and I was like, in, it was into November and I was like, just come stay at our house. Like we have a guest room. Um, you know, you have to navigate the obnoxious boxer puppy, but I swear it'll be okay, right, like, just come stay with us, and, um, and ostensibly, like, so many of my colleagues across the campus, because he's in a different college, he's a poet, um, were like, oh my god, that was so generous of you, that was so amazing that you opened up your house, and I was like, like, that's kind of the bare effing minimum, right, like, to welcome someone else into my house. Like my grandmother taught me better than that. Um, yeah, he's a colleague. He's he's literally an enrolled member of the nation whose lands we're occupying here that, you know, got taken through military and diplomatic incursions in the 18th century. So like, um, it, it's really minimal, but the fact that folks saw it as so huge and it really, um, I think, you know, what struck home for me is, um, Santi is a delight and he's also, I was trained as a professional cook. He was trained as a professional cook. And so, and we both did stints in like, um, country clubs and restaurants. And so like, we get together, we cook, he, he's uh, uh, we feed my family, And like, we stayed up late into the night talking about possibilities of pedagogy and teaching and what is education. And like, we had these amazing um, conversations around my um, dining room table. And like that investment in someone else who's, you know, ostensibly new to my community, yeah, it helped him out. He got to save, you know, a couple hundred or maybe a thousand bucks over like the six weeks he was here. Um, but it gave me so much more. Yeah. And and when we think about orienting our um our work, like he and I would have conversations about what does it mean to invest in the well-being of your colleagues? What does that look like? How do you know it's happening? Here's some things I see, right? Like that um, people walk, you know, he was saying, people walk into the administrative um, uh, coordinator's office in my department only when they need her to do something for them. I never hear folks start a conversation with, hey, what'd you do last weekend? It's all always, hey, can you get me a copy of, can you help me figure out this reimbursement? Can you do this, can you do that? And he's like, I think that that's a sign right of how people are um, invested or not in one another's well-being and like I think that that's something we each can do from our particular location is um, inquire it doesn't even have to be an interrogation like you don't have to like um, subject yourself to like self um, flagellation but to like be curious about well how, how am I showing up you know in terms of um, demonstrating my investment in the folks that I get to work alongside, Um, whether that be students or peers or, um, colleagues or, or families or what have you. So those are the things I was thinking about.
1: Yeah. It's a beautiful, it's a beautiful story, Rachel. And I said earlier, you all are, you're all dissertators. One of you is a new associate professor. Um, and you're brilliant scholars, but you also do this practically, right? You've all led residential life teams. You've all been in that role. Um, and I said, you live this in your lives. And you that's a beautiful story. And the story that you just told makes me teary with joy. And it's a great way to bring this because that's the liberation, right? It's not just all grind. It's not just all misery. That's the liberation. It's the joy. It's the fulfillment. It's the meaning. It's the connection. And you saying how much that brought to your life, that to me is where we're headed and that's where we're headed with well-being and belonging and justice and if we don't also have that analysis of what is wrong those systems of power and white supremacy and patriarchy then we can miss some things and do some harm along the way well we're we're just about out of time as we knew we would be but um you know the podcast is student affairs now so i always like to end with a question about what are you pondering thinking about or troubling now so uh Rachel, what is with you now?
2: I think the thing that i I'm the most engaged with right now is around um, who constitutes my sphere and um and how am I showing up with those folks um in ways that like enhances their well-being mm-hmm. um and and serves the greater organization. So, like, um, I'm taking a teaching sabbatical next semester because I have um, I've agreed to do some administrative work, basically um, helping our faculty realize elements of our inclusive excellence strategic plan. And it's a lot like herding cats. Um, and and I, it doesn't bring me joy. It does not bring me joy to um, Uh, do this administrative work. I I would much rather teach a social justice and inclusion class that I had slated for the spring. Um, But I believe in its potential. I believe in its long-term impact in terms of um, how it's going to recruit and retain minoritized faculty and staff and students. And so I'm investing in this semester. knowing that it's not going to be personally fulfilling, but that it's serving the organizational good. And that's not a decision I make every semester. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is one that I um do make occasionally and with with the consultation of the folks um around me who keep me on the path towards um you know the world I aspire to.
1: Yeah. Wonderful. I, I love that you're pointing to the the sustainability, right? It's not always giving, right? And where are things returning so that I can give. Yeah. Kaylee, what is with you now?
3: Yeah, I'm I'm thinking a lot about Rachel's story um, and her question around why we don't inquire, right? And why our, our, our workspaces are the way they are. I have the, the really unique opportunity to work for um, a, a you know small institution that prides itself on being founded in, in restorative practices. And on my first day of work, um, I think the president said to me, I just need you to know here we we make good decisions, but we make good decisions based on the people, not always the data. Mm-hmm. So if the people and the data are in conflict, we might, we're going to make a decision for the people. Mm-hmm. And that has really just struck with me because... Wow. Um, you know, um, we the organization, everybody shows up at 9 a.m. every Monday morning um, to do a check in circle and say hi and see how everybody's weekend was. And I when I was told that I, I thought of every awful team builder I had been in in my entire <laughs> career, honestly, and I was like that there is absolutely no way and <laughs> people show up and they care. And they have real conversations and they spend the first half an hour of everybody. Uh, most of us are working completely remotely. They spend the first half an hour of the week together and, you know, like with their hair in a messy bun and their coffee. And then everybody, you know, goes and, and does good work for the rest of the week in a way that's really powerful. So I think I'm thinking about the ways that we control, right? We control the way that we can bring this work um, and we can center relationships. Um, you know, I, I talked a lot about time, but the truth is, that I think that we all have control. Mm-hmm. Over the way that we spend our time, um, and so I'm I'm challenged and thinking a lot about how to how to do more of that um, in the work that I'm doing.
1: Wonderful,
0: Raf. I'm pondering a few things. I'm I'm pondering organizational congruity that we talked about earlier, and I sort of shared how important it is for that to be role modeled. and In uh, full disclosure, uh, I serve on the board of trustees for uh, the institution carries that, yeah. and start our board meetings in a circle, really. Talking again, uh, Rachel's point around a uh, ways of being versus doing, which is what I've been mostly pondering about, yeah. really, really resonates because it is important. We may learning as a we may learn it as a tool, but how does this become a way a practice and just how we are, how we engage, and uh, that organizational congruity is just so powerful. Uh, I'm thinking as a practitioner uh, a lot about sense of belonging uh, as a as a concept that has been around is really emerging and taking hold and and really focusing on how do we um, resist the urge to do what we do in student affairs, but in organizations broadly of of ill-defining or having so much definition creep to where the concept becomes the next IT project for amassing funding, uh, amassing uh, new offices or units, uh, but not really doing the work of living out what it means to understand sense of belonging and to make spaces where all of our students and everyone who's included uh, in the organization, those who have been left out of an organization, can see themselves reflected Mm -hmm. and as if they belong uh, in that space. And and that requires some more liberatory, radical ways of thinking and understanding and unpacking uh, by really centering experiences and stories, uh, not just outcomes.
1: Yeah. Well, and, you know, well-being, belonging, justice, these can all be jargony buzzwords that are empty and have, have no meaning but they don't have to be right and so i think sometimes people will use that as a criticism how did you let justice become a buzzword how did you lose the grounding of that uh and really tying into that and i'm i'm pondering uh you all have me thinking about adrienne marie brown's work um emergent strategies, is what i'm thinking about but just every time i hear her speak she gives me a role model for these micro liberation and emancipatory, which might just be her, might be her community, might be this. And and Rachel gave a lot of other examples of that. But it's always such a great reminder that this is absolutely impossible, possible in spite of everything. Sometimes the everything makes me think it's not. And people are doing this. And if I'm not in my microculture because of the things around me, how do I move more toward that? So I think that's a, a great connection that I'm making. Thanks to the University of Massachusetts Amherst Residential Life for hosting today's conversation and to our sponsors of today's episode, Simplicity and Stylus. Simplicity is the global leader in student services technology platforms, with state-of-the-art technology that empowers institutions to make data-driven decisions specific to their goals. A true partner to the institution, Simplicity supports all aspects of student life, including but not limited to career services and development, student conduct and well-being, student success and accessibility services. To learn more, visit Simplicity.com or connect with them on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And Stylus is proud to be a sponsor of the Student Affairs Now podcast. Browse their student affairs, diversity, and professional development titles at StylusPub.com. Use their promo code Now for 30% off all books, plus free shipping. You can also find Stylus on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter, at StylusPub. A huge shout out to our producer, Nat Ambrosi, who does all of the behind the scenes work to make us look and sound good. If you're listening today and not already receiving our newsletter, please visit our website at studentaffairsnow.com. Scroll to the bottom of the homepage to add your e- email to our MailChimp list. While you're there, check out the archives. I'm Keith Edwards. Thanks again to the fabulous guests today and to everyone who's watching and listening. Make it a great week.